Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure, which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Dr. Monica Gagliano, uh, who's speaking from Perth in Australia. And she's Research Associate Professor in Evolutionary Ecology at the Biological Intelligence Lab at Southern Cross University. Her main research is broadly focusing on key aspects of the ecological processes by which organisms are able to gather information on the variable conditions of their surrounding environment in order to thrive. In collaboration with various disciplines across the sciences and the humanities, her research aims at expanding our perception of animals, plants, and more generally, nature. In the process of learning how to do this, she has pioneered the brand new research field of plant bioacoustics and extended the concept of cognition to plants, reigniting the discourse on plant subjectivity, sentience, and ethical standing. Uh, what could be more important in terms of redefining our attitude to nature? And I'm just going to give you, before we start, uh, a wonderful quote that Monica has on the front of her web website. Not all who wander are lost. And I love that. Monica, welcome to Imaginal Inspirations. And well, we'll go straight you. into the uh, first question, which is a shaping moment or moments involving your choice of work. Oh my God, there have been so many. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, actually, there is one moment that happened when I was about nine. And uh, I was obsessed with the ocean uh, because I grew up in the mountains. <laughs> and it made sense, right, that a child would want what is not there. And I really wanted to work with the marine environment. And of course, being nine, I needed to go to school first. <laughs> But I remember contacting the WWF in Italy and asking where would I might work with the marine animals. And they gave me this contact from a professor in uh, San Diego at the Scripps, which, of course, is a very famous, one of the top institutions in the marine science world. And they said, well, you know, maybe you can contact this guy. <laughs> and uh, here I am. I just started, you know, at school uh, learning a little bit of English. And it was very, very very basic stuff like my name is I love the ocean I want to work with you and I sent off this letter to this man on the other side of the world and he replied amazing and that moment when he replied and he said to me like well you know it's so great to hear from you it would be a good idea to finish school first <laughs> and then maybe you know you can look around closer to home you know there are places like the UK that might be offering marine science and and then who knows, we might meet one day when, you know, you have developed your career. That letter was, I know, I knew then, and I know I've known that for a long time now throughout my career, that was a game changer because uh, someone in some place far away <laughs> on the other side of the world, which even as a concept, I didn't really know what it meant. Because I just, you know, I never left the little village where I was born. So it's like, I don't even know what that means, but it felt very exotic. And the fact that someone 
important, you know, and so from far away uh, would send me a letter back and encourage me to like, you can do this. I think that that was, yeah, that was the most important moment in my entire career, even if it would take a long time for that moment to unfold. And uh, it actually happened that when I, I did my undergraduate in Wales, at Bangor mm-hmm. University, and, uh, and when I got there... On the sea. That's right. And I <laughs> brought the cold to him. sea. That's right. I, I had a, 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 I think my idea of the ocean and the sea was a bit warmer, but <laughs> that was uh, okay at the time. And, and I was so happy and I started doing marine biology as a degree. And so I wrote to him again and he replied again. Say like, congratulations, this is great news. Maybe next time we'll meet at a conference or something like that. And, and then, you know, fast forward many few, a few years later, when I started my PhD here in Australia uh, at James Cook, I wrote to him again. And I said to him, like, I'm doing my PhD now and I am coming for a conference in the US and I wonder if you're attending. We actually never met. But yes. um, for me, is uh, you know, he changed everything. And he actually inspired me during my PhD. I, I was able to secure this small grant. Uh, it was at the time when Nemo just came out in the movies. Mm. And so the grant was called the Nemo Project. And the idea was precisely to f- provide the experience of someone like I was. So a young person in school to come out with us as the marine scientist and have the experience on the reef of what does it mean to be a marine biologist? Because a lot of kids have this romantic idea, but, and it is very romantic as well as, you know, it's work. And so, yeah, we ended up taking a girl up with us in the field and she, she did the field work with us and had the experience, which was what I never had, but I had it vicariously through those letters that this man decided to right to a nine-year-old yes it's like you had a calling and your calling was confirmed by this person who really affirmed you uh, confirmed right. and affirmed you and i think that's so important that that uh, one is affirmed in one's choices like that because it it then makes you sense that you're on track in your life if i can put it that way that's right and also you know i my parents my dad worked all his life in a factory. My mom was a shop assistant all her life. So we were not particularly affluent. Uh, we were okay, but not affluent. And uh, nobody at the time, nobody really went out to study overseas. You know, why would you even consider that? And so for them, when I received the first letter back and you really like, oh, I can do this. It's amazing. And now I just have to work out how I'm going to do this. When then I got offered a scholarship to go to to Wales for marine science, my parents just couldn't compute what was happening (laughs) because it didn't exist. It just didn't make any sense. It's like, well, first of all, why would you leave? And second, like, what do you mean you're going to the, where is the UK anyway? (laughs) What is this place? (laughs) Let alone Bangor. (laughs) So um, it was a big transition for them as well as, parents you know to witness this and and of course coming from a working class background uh, there was this ingrained mantra I would say that is like uh, you know you have to work hard and you know we can only get so far and you can't you know dreaming is fine but then there is reality and you can't yes. dream too big and you know all of that yes and, no, the kind uh, of structural limitations of expectation if you like that you, you, right. you kind of leapt right out of that 
Um, well, I'm glad I didn't listen. I was never listening to yes. my parents, and I'm glad I didn't listen at that time. <laughs> so no, yeah. and oddly enough, my my wife trained as a my wife Marianne. She trained as a, a marine biologist, and, and she had various uh, research jobs in Curacao, and then she went to Hawaii, swam mm. with the dolphins. I imagine that's something you've done as well, is it? You no, know, being with yeah. dolphins. I have actually um, had a beautiful experience in the field one day out on the outer Great Barrier Reef. I was doing a lot of my work. I would spend like three, four months of the year on the reef. And there was this little snobbish thing about dolphins because all of the youngest students, all they come to do marine biology, they all want to work with the dolphins. But actually there are fish and corals and so much more, right? So for those of us who didn't work with dolphins, which is the majority of, of us, uh, it was very much like, oh, those people that want to work with dolphins, so blah, so pathetic, you know? Like, and then, of course, the quintessential, you know, experience of like, we were out on a boat and this huge pod of like, I don't know, it must have been a hundred dolphins came by. And it was like, basically it was a rush because someone needs to stay on the boat. So it was a rush of who was going to be left behind to have to do the boat person while everyone else was in the water, deep blue, and all of these dolphins coming through. And, and I, yeah, I put my head underwater and I could hear them, you know, the, the, the communication oh, yes. going through. And I have, I remember having the camera with me and I took this beautiful shot that literally I could have stretched my hand and touched them. And I took this beautiful shot of these dolphins with the baby next to her. And yeah, so it was actually quite magical. Yes. <laughs> but we would never confess this. <laughs> no, and I, I think I, I read a book quite some time ago, which, which convinced me that dolphins were actually persons in the kind of philosophical sense. And this, of course, has yeah. implications. Your, your work you know, obviously goes further with, with plants. But I, I want to come back to any other influential mentor or teacher you obviously mentioned the person who replied to your letters is there anyone yeah. else who who springs to mind who was sort of influential in in guiding you uh, i think for me the guidance actually came from the contrast so i have met a lot of people who strongly tried to divert me and okay. i think those are mentors too Oh, because uh, it's almost like they were testing how how committed are you with this, you know? So and yeah, That's kind of reverse like, mentorship in, in a way. I mean, Albert Schweitzer right. said when when he decided to become a, a medical missionary and change uh, change his career from being an organist and theologian and philosopher to becoming a, a doctor, he said, "Don't expect people." to support you expect them to roll a few more stones onto your path so that That's sounds right. a little bit like your experience yeah so i think that i met a lot of people including you know even at the beginning very beginning of my time before i got to north wales i needed to have a letter from the the school just confirming that we do study english at school okay <laughs> and um you know, a very simple thing. And of course, that document needed to go with the rest of the documentation. But my teacher at the time, she just didn't want to write it. And she really? kept saying, like, why, why would you do that? Why would you? You're not going to. You can't speak the language. What are you doing there? And so I said, you just need to write me the letter. Then it's up to me. And it's my business if I fail. But at least. And she wrote it. But it was just at the last minute. 
And then, uh, you know, you send off like in super priority mode because you want to make sure that the documents arrive in time. And But, you know, in a way, she was a very harsh teacher for us. We read Brave New World in English. Really? Uh, we read the, the Animal Farm in English. When well, we that's were like, all terribly you know, relevant now, isn't it? I know. And, you know, for us, like you're a 16 year old, English is really like, uh, we, we can hardly say hello. <laughs> so those books were so difficult for the language and then so difficult conceptually as well, you know, like uh, right. I find them difficult even still now. <laughs> uh, they're so dense and rich and, and big. And yet, when I did land in the UK, it was amazing. My first year at university, it was amazing how quickly, how much I realized I had a vocabulary there that I didn't know I okay. had because yes. of her. And so in a way, it was the right mentor, even if it wasn't the kind of like, oh, this person is inspiring me. They're inspiring you, but in a different way. They are kind of pushing you to see, okay, if you're really committed to this, let's see. Let's see what you're made of. And, yeah, um, so you and you so you had these challenges really, you know, from your family expectations and your teacher expectations, and you had to overcome those, which obviously you did. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking today. That's right. You know? And then, but I, that's, I mean, some people say that I'm terribly stubborn, so maybe that's what it is. <laughs> well, my my son's pizza slice company is called Stubborn Slice. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Let's come on to. Um, books that have shaped your life and thinking i'm sure there are a few of those what what springs to mind oh there's so many books and books for me were since i learned to read they were like these worlds that i would just like dive in and and i could be sitting there reading for hours and yeah i've always had these uh, very deep reverence for books and um so the, the, I've, read, I've read so many books. There is one, it's an Italian author, and I read it maybe when I was, I don't know, maybe 15. And there is one sentence in the book that says something along the line. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase and translate. Yeah. <laughs> but it was something like, I am made of uh, quicksilver, not quartz. I'm always changing. I'm always in movement. This is my nature. And I remember that that word, those words kind of, I just thought, like, that's me. You see, that's me. Yes. <laughs> and so it, it, they've been very defining and to the point that, you know, even especially in the last few years, when I think everyone is going through a lot of change because life is demanding change, those words still are impacting me because it's like, you know, you, you know, this is your nature. So instead of fighting against it and, and struggling and get all anxious about change, you just need to embrace you because, you know, you are silver, quicksilver. Which is like the water in the Tao as well. So the, the water flows everywhere because it's completely flexible. That's it's right. Rigid. Death is de the, the youth is, is suppleness uh, and, and death is rigidity. And if That's you're over rigid, of course, you can't adapt to anything. That's right. And then what about yeah. your, when did you first go to um, South America and meet some shamans and, and have Ooh. those <laughs> kind of experiences? I think it was 2009. 
because that must have been another opening for you in terms also of, of, yeah. of, the, of the plants yeah i well the the opening with the plants came as you know via the opening uh, or the experience with a fish and it was the breaking down of that self that was the marine biologist and as you as you can see now it's like i've been a, i've been wanting to be a marine biologist forever <laughs> so suddenly i get to my 30s and suddenly it's like no no more and that change is unacceptable you know but then of course in the turmoil of what change and you use the beautiful metaphor of the butterfly and how it could never there's no way a butterfly knows it's going to be a butterfly while it's still a caterpillar right it's, in, right. it's inconceivable yeah. and yet so that was exactly it I was uh, back to be a caterpillar and uh, and wondering what the butterfly if there is anything coming it's going to look like and and so Peru came totally um by surprise, really, because I had no interest ever to go to South America. I really like the Asian countries and I like the, the European and the US and Canada, you know, like I had no interest to, to go to South America primarily because I felt like, oh, it's just too similar to my own country. <laughs> you know, they're more or less, you know, same, same. So there was never a call to go there. And then, as I described in the book, I already started working with the plants in my lab and I was um, volunteering and helping uh, a herbalist once a week just because I was always, and that I realized only much later, that I was always curious about making concoctions and making things that combine and, and the flavor as well of the magical, you know. So yeah, I was helping this herbalist and... And it was very amazing for me to to learn how to do the entire process of like making medicines, right? And it was during that time. So the plants were already infiltrating my life, both professionally and personally. And then those dreams started coming and, and it was like, oh, okay, this is what we are doing. And I should preamble that, you know, I went to Peru and I did this big process, which involved both ayahuasca and other plants. But I never really... I never really taken drugs. It's not like it was in my personality. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't like, oh, yeah, this is just another experience to get off my head. And on the contrary, my partner at the time was like, but Monica, you know, this is one of the most potent, you know, substances in the world. What are you doing? I was like, I'm going. I got my ticket. I'm going. <laughs> Which in a way is probably the same attitude that took me, you know, when I was a nine-year-old. Well, like, I was I'm just doing thinking this. that. Mm. That's right. So... At the end, nothing changes really. <laughs> and then what? But how did how did your experience change your perception and understanding? I'm obviously you have multiple experiences, but but what stands out? Well, I would say the fundamental is that these kind of experiences give direct and personal access to the world as it is rather than the world as we think of it. And so those experiences allow you to really penetrate the fabric of the living world and see that you are totally woven, interwoven, interweaved with everything else. Like you are it and everything else is you. 
And so that experience, I would say, and then it can come in many forms and it can be this plant or that plant or that group of people or these are the place. It doesn't really, fundamentally, it doesn't really matter at the end. At the end is like the, the experience that a friend of mine uh, who is a meditation teacher calls cosmic consciousness. This experience of like, uh, you are... Not only you recognize that, oh, I am actually more than just me, <laughs> step one. Yes. Uh, and then step two is like, oh, I am me within this body, but actually I'm everywhere. And that's step two. And then there is step three, which is like uh, the everything and everywhere is actually having this experience as the me. Exactly. Wow, that's so clear and beautiful. And it, it strikes me that that's, that's really the experience that we all need to have if we're going that's to right. create a new world. And I, I think it was Chris Bache who said to me, you know, if you had all the sort of G20 leaders, what would you do? And he said, well, I'd get them to have an experience like this. That's and then right. they would realize your, your phrase there, the world as it is, not as we think it is. And, and, and the experience is absolutely key and essential here without that then you can't get it that's right and i guess this is really uh, although for some people this sounds very esoteric and kind of like a woo woo hippie whatever but actually this is fundamentally the scientist that is talking because you know galileo himself it was like uh, we can believe whatever theory and we can debate and whatever which is what they were doing at the time of Copernicus and Galileo. But Galileo actually put some data to it. And the data where I have the, the, my own experience is showing me what this is. I know it because I've experienced it. No, I didn't know it because I've been thinking about it. Exactly. And, uh, and we can, we are very imaginable creatures. We can think about all sorts of things and imagine all sorts of things, but in the end, those things become manifest in this reality that we inhabit most of the time because we bring those experiences here. And so even in, as you said, like, oh, imagine if the, the, the world leaders could come and have this experience, the world would be different. Yeah, I think that's all it takes, actually. Mind you, apparently they do have a psychedelic place in Davos this week. <clears throat> um, oh well there you go forum but they and we definitely need to put klaus schwab in there and <laughs> give him the experience that he's not a machine but he's actually a human being I, right. I just wanted to bring in um goethe um because goethe's approach to science and indeed color um, was very original and has been taken up by quite a number of people like brian goodwin who was um, a senior person in the network and goethe talked about contemplation sort of contemplative science becoming one with the plant and understanding the processes of the plant from within um, mm -hmm. and so he wasn't objectively looking at the plant he was subjectively experiencing the process going on within the plant how does that kind of formulation relate to your own understanding well, you know, someone like Goethe probably actually certainly was able to verbalize this much better than I am. <laughs> and this also to me speaks of the power of the poetic language and the arts. Not because science is not an art form, but at the moment is um, it's kind of dissolved itself. 
and uh, yes. and it is this lack of soul that doesn't allow the space which we call science to really explore really experience as you correctly said is like goethe was uh, looking at plants in a subjective way and even just recognizing that that is actually the only way that we can look at anything and is for me that it's the quintessential internal paradox of science it's like is it's got a methodology which is totally fine i don't have a problem with the method but the assumption that is underpinning this method is that you can be objective but when you understand objective as you looking as this separate entity to a world of objects then you're already yeah you're already seeing the world as you think the world it is not as it is and exactly. um, and you know so Gerson but is not the only one I mean you asked me before a book that is really inspiring me um, and it has been for a long time and I'm actually rereading it now again and is uh, Thomas Perry the dream of the earth ah wonderful as exactly I spoke and to Brian Swim last week and he was hugely uh, influenced by yeah, Thomas Perry. Yeah, I remember his book on the on the universe and it's just the, the poetic language. Again, here is a scientist where the poetic language is the only real way. The science, the science language, the dryness of the science language can only take us so far. And then there is a gap. And unless you can step over and, and go through that gap, you're not entering the world. As yes, I mean, it is what Brian Goodwin called a science of qualities. He says That's we have right. a science of quantities, and then what we need to develop is a science of qualities, um, which right. can be equally rigorous in its own way. Absolutely. Um, um, because as, as Ravi Ravindra says, in, in, when he's looking at yoga and physics, he says there's a rigor about yoga. There's an inner rigor about yoga, which corresponds to the outer rigor of physics. That's right. Um, I and wanted to come on to um, your music and art because obviously this is a different mode of expression if i can put it that way um to your science um and how does that play a part in your life and and you've got this project resonant earth uh, you said <laughs> more coming soon so you'll have to tell us a bit more about that as well yeah well music i don't know how anybody could live without it I think uh, it's uh, one of it should be one of the basic needs of human beings for the well-being of a human. Music needs to be there, and uh, and really any expression, like any form of arts, should be there because uh, without that, the soul dies, and it needs to find that uh, joy. And I think for me that that's what music does, and. I wasn't trained as a musician at all. I don't read music, but I discovered over the years playing and singing with really good musicians, I discovered that I have a good ear. <laughs> so I can find my way into the music, even if I don't know what the notes are, I'll be able to find myself in there and play with it. And um, and I know this is a comment that has been made to me many times. Is like when I start playing or singing, I have this enormous smile on my face that is just like, a, yeah, because I really feel this joy that arises from my heart and it just moves the muscles on my face. And so, 
yeah, it's an essential nourishment, I would say. And the painting for me is similar and I I haven't done much dancing more recently, but I used to, uh, for many years, I, I used to dance every week. And so the literally the, the bodily expression, the the body being used to express and to, in a way, it's like a prayer, you know, it's like a, it's a prayer, it's a thank you, it's, a, it's like, whoa, it's a celebration of I'm alive. I'm alive and I am wanting to embody as much of this life spirit as possible. Absolutely. I am life. It's close back to Hildegard and, and the Celtic tradition. I just wanted to read this quote from Thomas More that you have on your site, because yeah. this is what you've been talking about here. The soul has an absolute and unforgiving need for regular excursions into enchantment. I think you could say that to your scientific colleagues as well, because there's <laughs> yeah. been a disenchantment, a desoling, as you put it. And we now need to put that element back into yeah. science, into life, into philosophy, in order to recover meaning and connection. Yeah. And I think really, you know, fundamentally, we're just taking these all too seriously. Seriously. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. like... Uh, we're supposed to be here, all of us, all the eight billions of us, or how many we are these days. We are all supposed to be here to really have an incredible experience of this moment, because it's such a moment of what we call, ah, oh, this is my life here in this space, in this dimensional space, in this reality. Yeah, and instead we're taking so seriously things that don't really have that much meaning. And yet the things that do have meaning, we, um, and I would say, especially in the last few centuries, we have uh, demystified them, disenchanted them, almost like, a, actually, that's bad. If you get close to that, it's bad. And, and those are, is what feed our soul. And in that sense, it's like, um, again, it goes back to your comment before, it's like, this is what the world needs. It needs to be fed, nurtured again, to realize that life always keeps giving. But if we say, no, I'm not eating tonight, and then, no, I'm not eating tonight, it, life keeps giving anyway. But if you refuse to live, to be alive, uh, then there's not much that life can do except keep giving, which yes. she does. There's <laughs> that abundance, that generosity, that's one of the things that Brian Swim was talking about last night, the, the generosity of That's the universe, right. the generosity of a fruit tree. And we, we should be generous as well. And, and That's right. In other words, life flows through us. Water sap throws, flows through us. Uh, we are if life. We are open to it. We are life. It doesn't, there is nothing that flows through. We are it. Yes, the and energy. The you're right. Of, I mean, I, I'm making right. a distinction. You're quite right. I mean, we're, we're we are life. We are expressions of life, and but we are a particular form of life. That's uh, right. Like. And life wants to have a good time, well, <laughs> as it indeed. does all over. <laughs> Very much. And then, uh, do you have? And you obviously got a number of quotations that are, mean a lot to you. But do you, do you have a particular one that you'd like to share at this point, and uh, or a proverb? Ooh. Proverb has distilled wisdom. I was reading my friend Therese Shodashika last night, a beautiful uh, essay on the the midwife in the Hebridean islands. 
Mm. What springs well, to mind uh, in terms of a quote? The first thing that comes to mind and is actually is pretty serious, but <laughs> is uh, from the Tao Ching, and and it's like yeah, the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao, and and that to me summarizes, you know, all we can do is approximations. And uh, but they're beautiful approximations, so we can make them as beautiful as possible. Because the more we do that, the closer we actually are to what life is. And yet, you know, it's always a work in progress, and that's the beauty of it. And um, uh, indeed, uh, I I read Rosemary Anderson's uh, Tao Te Ching every morning. Uh, wow! So I'm steeped in the Tao Te Ching. It's part of my everyday life and and mm. understanding it's such there's such depth in it you never get to the bottom of it as you said and then monica it strikes me that you've been unusually true to yourself and your calling there's something in you which demanded in a sense you know to become who you have become so i'm not sure whether you have any advice you give to your younger self <laughs> well I think I'm trying to give my my future self is trying to give advice to me right now <laughs> more than anything. And um, especially the last, I would say the last year has been challenging me with change again. And uh, I know that I am transmuting again. And like all the other times, I don't know what I'm becoming. But um whether I've been in meditation or walking my dog or at the beach or whatever, just contemplating where I'm at at the moment, what I've been, you know, told over and over again is like, uh, has life ever dropped you? No. <laughs> and so the, if no. the past has anything to teach, it's like, uh, well, when did life didn't work out? The, it, yes. it, and when you say that, when you think of it that way, it makes me always feel like, uh, oh, there is no, it's not a possibility. Life cannot not work out. And even when it's finished in this form and we consider like, oh, that's the end. Well, that's also part of life, you know, so it works out. It's, it works its way, just like water, you know, it works its way precisely as it wants and it needs to. And and the more I surrender to that and the more I, yeah, I, I find myself at ease with like, uh, it's okay. I don't need to know what I'm becoming next. What a boring book would be if I knew the end. <laughs> well, that's and, true. Uh, it's trust, isn't it? That's I, I right. One final question, which I had actually meant to ask before. My impression is that there's a growing realization of the pervasiveness of intelligence in nature. And this idea that everything is random and, and natural selection and you know, there's no kind of pattern in anything, there's no intelligence behind the whole process, I think is losing ground. Uh, would you agree with that? I think we are, as a, as a species, as a humanity, we are actually following precisely the pattern of natural selection in the sense that as we are evolving, we are realizing new ways of understanding or perceiving or experiencing this reality. And so the boundaries that we had imposed on our appreciation and perception before, they have to be liquefied 
so that we can pull those wings out when the butterfly comes out. And I think as humanity, we are precisely in that moment as well. So it looks like uh, some of those boundaries are like, oh, you see, we were wrong, but actually like they were perfectly right because uh, they brought us here. And from here, we can grow. That's a wonderful uh, way to end. Uh, Monica, <laughs> thank you so much for being on Imaginal Inspirations and uh, good luck with your evolving work. Yeah, let's see what kind of wings do I get. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for having Goodbye. me, David. Thank you.